This morning we are finishing a short two-part series uh, that began two weeks ago through chapter 14 of Romans and then into chapter 15. Uh, Lord willing, next week, uh, Pastor Ross will be back to finish uh, the series through the book of Hosea. And then in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we'll begin uh, a series through a couple chapters in the middle of the Gospel of John. So that's giving you a little heads up of what's to come. But today, we're going to finish this two-part series through uh, Romans 14 and the first half of Romans 15. If you were not here two weeks ago, I'd encourage you to maybe go back uh, and listen to the sermon. It's available on our church's website because this morning I'm really building on that foundation. And so I am assuming that most of you were here for that, or at least that you're familiar with Romans 14 verses 1 through 12. And again, if not, that sermon is available on, on our church website. We were just praying through song. Uh, Let's pray now one more time, and then we'll get into this text. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would take this truth and plant it deep in us, that you would shape and fashion us to be more like your son, Jesus. That is our prayer. In his name we do ask this. Amen. Well, this past week during Vacation Bible School, uh, one of the things that happens is that during the the week, uh, each morning, the kids will come into this room and have a couple lesson times. Uh, Tim Cornish from a ministry named RBM was here to to serve us. And one of the things that we do together in this room throughout this week is we sing songs. And then those songs stick with us. If you are a child and you're here for VBS, there were probably at least a few songs we sang this week that you have found uh, running through your mind over the last few days. If you're an adult who were here, especially for us, those songs seem to just stay there. Well, one of the songs we sang this week asked some questions. So some of you kids know which song I'm talking about, right? And we had these hand motions, but the questions were who, how, what was next, kids? When, why, and where? These are questions that we asked this week to discover the truth from God's word. These are questions that journalists have asked for years. And these are some questions that will help us this morning consider what God has for us from from this part of his word. So maybe the first question is, is who is this passage about? As Tim read it just a few minutes ago, he ended with chapter 15, verse 7. And as you read 15, verse 7, perhaps you remembered 14, verse 1. Let's look now at chapter 14 of Romans, verse 1, where we read, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The bookends of this longer section of the Bible both say the same thing. In essence, they say, welcome one another. Specifically here, welcome Christians who disagree with you. That's what's going on at the church here in Rome. And that's what happens in in really all churches is there are Christians who have disagreements on what we call non-essential issues. So not the absolutes of what the Bible is clear on, but second level or third level issues. And the command from this long section of scripture from the beginning to the end is is welcome Christians. 
So the, the who question is, who are we supposed to welcome? And the answer is Christians. And here particularly Christians who disagree with us on these non-essential issues. Then next we might ask, well, well, why? Why would I welcome Christians who are not like me and who, frankly, I don't always like? Because we disagree on a number of things. Well, again, I encourage you to, to go back and, and to study the first part of Romans chapter 14 or, or listen to the sermon from two weeks ago because we, we saw from this text five reasons why we are commanded, we are to welcome Christians who disagree with us. Today, the question is then, okay, how? So we know who we're supposed to welcome. We saw why we're supposed to welcome them. Now, now the question is, how? How do we welcome Christians who disagree with us? So here in Romans, the, the issue is that in this church, we have these two groups who have different consciences on some issues that were highly visible and that affected church life. Special diets and special days. So one group over here, they believed that there were certain foods they should not eat. While this group over here understood that Jesus had declared all foods clean. And this group over here, they, they believed that there were certain days of the week that were to be honored in a special way. And this group over here believed that all days were equal. This affected church life. This affected interactions between Christians in the same church family. And we today have all kinds of differences. And many of those differences are, are private. Maybe we, we don't always share with other people what we believe it's, it's okay for a Christian to, to watch or to listen to. But, but many of our differences are, are visible. It affects what we think is appropriate to wear. It affects things like school choice, and you can go on and on and on. So how do we welcome Christians who disagree with us? It's important to, to remember here, from God's word, the importance of the conscience and the two great principles of the conscience. I'll just briefly remind us of this. And this is based on, on this book from Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley titled Conscience. And we see it in our in our passage today. So there are two great principles, biblical principles of conscience. And the first one is to obey your conscience. To obey it. Earlier we read verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. Here Paul is inspired by God to write, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So if your conscience tells you something is not allowable, it's unclean, then, then you ought to obey it. Look down at verse 22. Again, we read it just a few minutes ago, but let's, let's look again. Verse 22 of chapter 14. First, it starts with the faith that you have. It's worth pausing here and just, just noting. When we read the Bible and we read the word faith, we should be thinking of trust, belief, confidence. Often, and sometimes in the book of Romans, the faith is saving faith. It's the faith of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for, for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for rescue, for restored relationship with God. But here, that's not the kind of faith that verse 22 and really this longer passage is talking about. You say, Pastor Kevin, why, why would you say that? Well, first, just look at the beginning of verse 22. It says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Are we supposed to keep our saving faith to ourselves? Are we supposed to tell others about faith they can have in Jesus? No, we're supposed to tell others. So it's not that kind of faith. Another reason we know this is not speaking of saving faith is that earlier in the chapter, we read that for both of these groups of Christians, God has welcomed them both. They both have been adopted, welcomed into God's family. So it's not saving faith. Instead, it's this kind of belief that we would call our conscience. It's this understanding in our minds of of what we believe is right and wrong. So keep reading verse 22. The faith or the conscience that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now listen. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith or conscience. For whatever does not proceed from that kind of belief, that conscience kind of faith, is sin. So when your conscience tells you that something is wrong, and especially when you believe it's operating correctly, obey your conscience. But the second biblical principle is also found in this passage, and that is that we are to strengthen our conscience. We're supposed to, to make it stronger. And how do we do that? We do it by calibrating our conscience according to God's word. So there's a standard here. It's the Bible. And as we grow in Christ, we should understand more and more what God has said. We just prayed that God would speak to us. And, and when God answers our prayer and speaks to us through his word, then we are to change our thinking, even change our beliefs, our conscience, to, to submit it to God's word. And so these two great principles of the conscience guide us. And you can see how God, through Paul, is seeking to strengthen the conscience of these Christians. So look at verse 14 again. Paul says, I know. I know. He doesn't say, I I think, I guess, I hope, I wonder. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Something amazing is happening. God, through the apostle Paul... Is saying, listen, no matter which group you're in, you can honor God, and you should and ought to love each other and protect the peace and unity of the church. But Paul also is saying, listen to what Jesus has said. When Jesus in Mark 7 declared all foods clean, Paul says, that that was enough for me. Jesus said it, and I'm persuaded of it. Look at verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 14. Right in the middle of the verse, we have this, four-word phrase in most of our English translations, everything is indeed clean. Elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So God's word strengthens our conscience as we understand what God has said, and we believe what God has said, and then we obey what God has said. The two great principles of the conscience are ones that that you as a Christian ought to follow. You ought to obey your conscience, especially when you believe it's operating correctly, and you ought to seek to strengthen it. You see, Paul here in this passage, he identifies with those who have a stronger conscience in these issues. Did you notice that? Beginning of verse 15, I'm sorry, beginning of uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, we who are strong. He identifies with those who have a stronger conscience. And throughout, he is seeking to help Christians grow 
strengthen their conscience so that we can be more flexible. So the two great principles, obey your conscience, strengthen your conscience. Now, that's not our tendency, is it? Our tendency is to, to know what we know and to really like dig our heels in and to insist that we are right. Our tendency over here is what? To know what we know, to dig our heels in, and insist that we are right. And Paul speaks to both groups and he says, no, no, what you're supposed to do is welcome each other. You're supposed to welcome each other. Love of others and unity of the church is more important than these non-essentials. It's more important. So, now let's get to kind of our main points. How do we welcome each other? How do we welcome others who disagree with us? Well, first of all, we must put off or repent of, put off three things. First, we must put off judging. We, we don't judge. This is one of the points from two weeks ago, and it's again in our passage. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. I wonder if God knows the human heart well enough to say the same thing twice in just a short passage. Because it's in our, our temptation, right? To judge. So the strong, conscious Christian is tempted to, to look at those who, who have a weak conscience and say, those people don't understand what Jesus has done. They don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. They're not mature like us. They're legalistic. All they think about are rules. And God condemns this attitude of superiority. He says that is not love. Those who are weak in conscience in a particular area, we, we have a temptation to, to pass judgment on those who are strong. We think things like, how can they call themselves a Christian and do that? Don't they know that hurts the testimony of Jesus? Don't they know that they're supposed to give that up for the sake of the gospel? And God says to both groups, don't judge. Now, maybe this is worth, for, for some of us, pausing and saying, Lord, I'm going to confess this right now. Right now, even as I'm talking and, and you're sitting there looking at me, you can confess this in your mind, in your heart to God. Lord, forgive me for my judgmental attitude, maybe even judgmental words about other Christians who you have welcomed into your family. And I have judged them. Secondly, the next sin we're supposed to put off in order to welcome others is... It's the sin of tempting others, tempting others to sin against their conscience. So keep reading verse 13. Instead of passing judgment, rather decide. Here's a moment of decision. Make up your mind, God says. Commit to doing something. Decide. Decide what? Keep reading. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Later on in this passage, verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. There's a way for those who, who are strong in conscience in a particular area to, to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a spiritual sibling or to grieve them. Look at verse 20, down at the end of verse 20. It is wrong. Here's pretty clear, right? It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21. It is good 
not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Over and over again in this passage, we have this command to not tempt your spiritual sibling to sin against their conscience. So go back to great principle one and two, right? One is obey it. And we ought to look at our spiritual sibling and say, you should obey your conscience. And, and I'm going to do my best to, to never do anything that would tempt you to disobey your conscience. Now, this concept of, of a stumbling block, I've heard it taught, honestly, unbiblically or poorly. What, what does it mean to, to put a stumbling block in the way of another Christian? Maybe an illustration will help, okay? So you all know what it's like to have, um, well, maybe you yourself don't have a child, but you've seen young children who are learning to walk. You've seen this, right? Uh, so right now in our church family, uh, Asa Shannon is starting to learn how to walk, right? So let's just say that, that you're working in the nursery one Sunday morning and Asa is in there or another child who's learning how to walk and you see them, you know, take their hand, like they're, they're up and they're holding onto a rocking chair or something and they take their hand off and they're starting to move across the room. Big moment, right? What are you going to do? You're going to take all the toys you can find, all the books, and put them right in the path of Asa. No, you're not. No, you're not going to put a stumbling block in the way of someone who's, who's a weak, physically a weak individual, who is just learning what it's like to walk, whose balance is not yet there, the coordination is, is still very, very small, but you're going to clear the way, right? You're, you're going to clear the way and you're going to celebrate. You're going to celebrate the, the few steps that he might be able to take before he falls down. When we see a, a weaker Christian, and by the way, it's, it's worth noting that weak conscience Christians generally should be those who have been saved for less time. If, if you've been saved for many years, many decades even, then as you submit your thinking to God's word, he, he should, he will grow us to become stronger in our conscience. Stronger and even more persuaded in what Jesus has said. But, but for those of us who've been saved longer, it would be a sin to look at a, a new, young Christian, a baby Christian, you might say, and to say, oh, you're so cute as you try to follow Jesus and you're faltering halting ways. I'm just going to put all kinds of stumbling blocks in your path so you fall. How unloving that is. How unloving it is to put a hindrance, a hindrance in the way of a, of a spiritual sibling whom God has welcomed and to do anything that would tempt them to, to fall. Don't tempt other Christians to sin against their consciences. That's a serious sin. Now, the weak conscience Christian also might experience a temptation in this issue to say, well, because I'm weak in this, you also need to be weak. So Asa, Shannon, might say to you, well, you need to fall over a lot as you walk. No, no, no. It, it's wrong for a, a Christian who, who has a weaker conscience in, in the area to say, well, well, you need to do everything that, that I'm doing. No, we need to do what God has said. That's what we need to do, what God has said. But it's, it's also unloving for the strong conscience Christian in that area to say, well, here's a stumbling block. I'm going to tempt you to sin against your conscience. We must never allow 
the conscience of others to determine our own conscience. But we must always consider the conscience of others when we determine our own actions. Did you catch that? We must never allow the conscience of others to determine our own conscience. Why? Because, because God is the master. He's the Lord. He's the one we'll stand before one day and give an account. Romans 14, verse 12. But we must always consider the consciences of other Christians when we determine our own actions. If we don't, then, then we're likely to tempt them. And this passage says that temptation of other Christians is the way that we are tearing them down. So third, don't tear down other Christians. Verse 15 ends this way. Chapter 14, verse 15. By what you eat... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Jesus gave his life for that spiritual sibling, weak and young as they may be. And by, by our actions, by your actions, we, we could actually destroy, tear down is what it literally means. Tear down the one who, whom Christ gave his life for. So, verse 16, do not let what you regard as good, what Paul says Jesus has declared as clean, don't let that be spoken of as, as evil. Do you know what's more important to, to God than my deeply held convictions and opinions? You all. You're more important. And do you know what's more important to God than your deeply held convictions and opinions? Other Christians who disagree with you. Because Jesus gave his life for that spiritual sibling. And God has welcomed that person. And so don't, don't tear them down. Instead, seek to, seek to strengthen them, seek to help them, seek to encourage them. Verse 16 introduces a category that we need to have as Christians. Here's a category, verse 16, of, of something that, that is good, that's correct, that's factually, objectively true, but it's done in evil ways. It's acted out wickedly. Do you have a category like that? Do you have a category of ways in which you might be factually correct, objectively true, and yet it can be exercised toward other Christians in ways that that is evil. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. In many ways, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10 is a very helpful, somewhat of a parallel passage to Romans 14 and 15. But listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 9. God says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So don't judge. Don't tempt. Don't tear down. And then we get to verses 17 through 19, which in many ways is kind of like the, the high point of this passage. Because here Paul lifts our eyes. He lifts the eyes of the church at Rome. And by extension, he lifts the eyes of First Baptist Church of Lapeer. He lifts our eyes from things like food and days and eating and drinking. And he says this. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, don't live for non-essential convictions and opinions. 
Even the ones that are so deeply held. And we all have these. We have things that if you get us talking about them, you'll hear three points in an outline, you know, and a poem, an illustration about why you believe these things. We all have these. And God says, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about non-essentials. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. So live for those things. Maybe a helpful exercise for some of us would be to ask people who, who are in our lives and, and who know us decently well, but maybe, um, maybe don't know us too well, to ask that person, what do you think my life's all about? What do you think I'm living for? What do you think I value? What do you think is most important to me? See, the people who know us really well, they probably have heard us say what's most important to us. So they might want to please us and, and you know, say what we've said is important. But, but the people who maybe don't know us that deeply, but just observe our lives, maybe coworkers or neighbors or whomever, they might be the ones to say, you know, you really talk a lot about this and spend a lot of time doing this. It sure seems like those are really important to you. And God says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy, not second or third level convictions or opinions. So as Christians... How can we love Christians who disagree with us? Well, we put off these things. We put off judging and tempting and tearing down other Christians. And then we, we put on some things, right? Repentance, biblical repentance includes turning from sin and turning to what is right. Putting off, putting on, the Bible says. So, so what do we put on? Well, we put on bearing with. Bearing with. Chapter 15, look at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation. We have a debt we owe, you might say, an obligation. We ought to do this. To do what? To bear with the failings of the weak. How many of you here, you are fast walkers? You're fast walkers? You know who you are. Just admit it. Yeah, I'm a fast walker. I'm a fast walker. So I'm, I'm there in the nursery with Asa Shannon, right? And he's taking his first couple steps. And what, what do I do? Come on, man, come on. We're... No, that's not loving. No, we who, who can walk well and, and even quickly, who are stronger in strength and, and balance, and we, we bear with this, this child who is just learning how to walk. We bear with even their, their fallings, their failings. Because we're not... We're not there to please ourselves. We're not in this church to please ourselves. Instead, we, we bear with those who, who are weak, who, who fail. Most of this passage here is directed to, to what we call strong conscience Christians. Now, to be clear, uh, I believe every Christian uh, is strong in some areas and weak in other areas. When you look at the Christian life as a whole, we want to see, you know, growth to strength as we submit to God's word. But those of us who, who can think of an issue in which we would call ourselves a strong conscience Christian, that's what Paul calls himself here in, the, in, this, in these issues. Our temptation, well, I'll speak for myself, my temptation is to look at Christians with weaker consciences in that area and say, don't you believe what Jesus said? My beliefs are in line with Jesus. 
Come on, get with the program. But then God says, no, we have an obligation to bear with the struggles, the failings of those who are weak because we're not here to please ourselves. This doesn't mean that those who are strong have to agree with the position of the weak. It doesn't mean that those who are strong can never again exercise their freedoms in Christ, but it means that the strong gladly help the weak by removing temptations and by bearing with slow progress. That's what it means. So we bear with each other. Secondly, we build up each other. We build up each other. This is found in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 15. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor. Now pause there. Oh, so God wants us to be people pleasers. Well, no, not in the way we normally use that expression. Keep reading. Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So this clarifies, it defines what it means to please others. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Christian freedom is not, I always do what I want. Nor is Christian freedom, I always do whatever the other person wants. What's Christian freedom? Christian freedom is, I do what brings glory to God. I do what brings others under the influence of the gospel. I do what strengthens other Christians I do what leads to peace in the church. That's Christian freedom. And then God inspires Paul to raise up before us the best example of this. Did Christ please himself? Look at verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Did Jesus have some rights and freedoms and liberties that he could have exercised for his own interests? Certainly. Read Philippians 2. But what did Jesus do? He did not consider his equality with God the Father as something to be selfishly grasped or leveraged to his own advantage. Instead, what did he do? Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? Why? So that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that we could have a restored relationship with our creator. Aren't you thankful that Christ did not please himself? But instead he sought the good, the spiritual good of others? Of you? My friend, if if you've never called on Jesus to save you. Jesus went through all of that humiliation. That that self-humbling. So that you could know true peace and righteousness and joy. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And Jesus now offers himself in our place. He lived perfectly. He never sinned, never gave into temptation. And though he didn't deserve then the penalty for sin, which is death, he took that death on himself. He went to the cross so that we who place our ultimate trust and faith in him 
we who commit ourselves to him fully, we can experience his forgiveness. We can experience the the salvation, the rescue from that kind of judgment, death on a cross that we deserve. And then Jesus proved that he is more powerful than death because he came back to life after three days. And that proves that, that he is God. And now he reigns and rules as king over all. And one day, he will finally and fully judge all evil. We will stand before him. And those who are in Christ, who have that peace with God through Jesus, he will welcome us into his presence forever. But, but if you haven't done that, if you're resisting that offer of salvation, on that day, you will receive the penalty that you deserve for your sin. You'll be sent to an eternity apart from God to be, to be tormented forever. See, Christ did not please himself. But instead, he, he took on himself the reproach that, that we deserve. And he offers us new life and forgiveness. The one who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. The one who who was God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, became man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by God's eternal plan. This is the humiliation of Christ, and this is our example. When we are tempted to, to put stumbling blocks in the way of other Christians, when we're tempted to, to tear them down, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, bear with the failings of the weak, and build them up. Don't build up yourself, build them up. And in doing this, we will pursue peace. This is how we pursue peace in the church. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15 give us really a prayer from Paul for the church at Rome. And I think it's fitting for us as a church. And so in a moment, we'll, we'll pray verses 5 and 6. This just affirms what, what God inspired Paul to write in chapter 14, verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. First Baptist Church, the, the message of Romans 14 and 15 is that we would welcome one another. Especially work, pursue, work to welcome those who, who we just naturally don't like or who, who just aren't like us. We live very different lives. We have different backgrounds. In some second and, and maybe especially third level issues, we, we've just decided very differently from each other. So, so our lives don't, don't overlap a lot. It's those individuals, especially those individuals who are members of, of this church, who we must work to welcome, pursue them in love. Peace and mutual edification, mutual building up within this church are more important than our deeply held convictions and opinions on non-essential issues. The men are welcome to, to head toward the back to prepare for communion right now would you keep your bibles open i say that too late keep your bibles open and romans 15 verses 5 and 6 will be our 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 meditation our prayer together right now 
So I'd encourage you silently right now to, to look over verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15. And then to maybe repent of judgmentalism, tempting other Christians, tearing them down. I'll give us a few moments of quiet here and then I'll, I'll pray out loud verses 5 and 6 for us. God of endurance and encouragement, grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is our prayer. Do this for your glory and for the strength and peace and unity of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.